good morning again. Uh, let's go back to Luke uh, chapter 19. Um, yeah. Nine, 1619. I get that backwards. 1619. All right. Benjamin Franklin once said, Money has never made man happy, nor will it. There's nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more of it one has, the more one wants. We are in a time in America where we, are, we, we all think we are entitled. Charles W. Bray III was once the deputy director of the U.S. Internal Communication Agency, I don't know what that is, uh, wrote something perceptive about entitlement in Quote Magazine in 1981. He said, we've come to a time where we say, you deserve a break today. Many, too many of us believe that. If we're poor, we deserve welfare. If we're rich, we deserve a tax break. If we are workers, we deserve better fringe benefits. If we own Chrysler or GM, we deserve a bailout. <laughs> All right, this parable that we read this morning, the, the rich man and Lazarus, is about two contrasting individuals. One lived for material possessions, and the other lived to serve God in his life. It also depicts the permanent reality of the hereafter in contrast to the temporary present. What we see today is temporary. What, what is to come is eternal. And as the rich man will find out, there is no going back. The details in the story are colorful and the contrast is sharp. For the rich man, earthly life is a daily feast. For the poor man, clothed in running sores, he, who lies among the dogs, life is torturous. Verse 22 says, both die, but only the rich man is buried. In eternity, their roles will be reversed, as we will see. And sadly, for the rich man, the outcome is unalterable. Okay, so let's start with verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Okay, now, uh, let's see, other translations may say he lived in splendor every day. So both the clothing made of purple cloth and the fine linen worn for underclothes were expensive. When you wore purple, people knew you were well off, for purple dye was very costly in those days. Both are indicative of opulence at that time, for the rich man dressed in robes of royalty and fine Egyptian undergarments, life was the daily feast and party. He's a picture of a rich, indulgent, carefree lifestyle. In verse 20, it says now, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, meaning the rich man's gate. So at the gate of the rich man was laid this sick, hungry, neglected beggar. His sickness had robbed him of the strength to move himself, so he had to be carried. He was laid at the rich man's gate probably because he had, the, he had the resources to do more than just give him a little food to sustain his life, which is probably all, of his previous, all his previous caregiver could do. The rich man could have been on the cover of People magazine. Lazarus, no one would even have known his name. 
but God records Lazarus's name while the rich man remains nameless. Okay, let's look at the character of the rich man first. All right, first of all, Jesus accuses him of no crime. All right, his morals are not called into question at all. His physical condition, as the story begins, he possessed, obviously possessed great wealth. His clothing, purple of royalty and fine linen, was probably worth its weight in gold. And wealth pride was shown in wearing these. He lived in luxury every day, with the finest food, complete comfort, festivity. So he was separated from poverty and suffering by a fence and gate. It says he, Lazarus was laid at his gate, so he, had, he was separated from, from what he didn't want to see. All right, his, let's, let's look at his death now. Um, uh, I'm sorry, let's pick it up in verse 21. This is Lazarus. Lazarus was, was desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment he, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So the rich man's death, he's, his, he was buried. He had a burial. He had a funeral. All right. It's noted in verse 22, and it was, probably was a splendid one. His passing shows that death is universal. In the end, wealth is impotent, and even the wealthiest die. Let's look at the uh, character and condition of Lazarus now. What sort of person was he? He was a beggar, it says here. It doesn't mean he was a vagrant or some sort of parasite. It, means it just meant that he was poor. He couldn't take care of himself. He possessed no wealth. His name, Lazarus, means God is my help. And it's the only name given to a person in a um, parable by Jesus was Lazarus. This is not the same Lazarus that rose from the... Jesus rose from the grave, the brother of Martha and Mary. <clears throat> okay, so his name is actually an indication of spiritual wealth, where the, the rich man was physical wealth. His physical condition, he was laid at the gate of the rich man, probably, as I said, probably because the last person who cared for him could care for him no longer, and was just left him on, at the gate of this rich man, knowing he had money, could probably take care of him. It's like, you know, used to leave babies on doorsteps, remember, when the mother couldn't take care of him. Same kind of thing. <clears throat> His physical needs are expressed that he was begging for crumbs from the rich man's table. Okay, the dogs present, the dogs present a sharp contrast to the rich man's undoubtedly many friends. Now, we may think this is an unappealing image of the dogs licking his sores. Well, dogs lick, typically lick for two reasons. They either like the person, or they lick to heal a wound, you know? And scientific research shows that saliva contains something called peptide antibiotics, which facilitate healing. So though the, the wealthy man felt no compassion toward Lazarus, the dogs do. <clears throat> now Lazarus is death. He died with no mention of funeral, burial, or mourners. Okay, but his death was fitting that of a saint just passing event, just a passing event leading to better things. His spirit was carried to Abraham's side by the angels, where there's no mention of the rich man being carried anywhere, <clears throat> except he ends up in Hades. 
And note that Lazarus is counted as righteous, not because he was poor, but because he depended on God. Yet his poverty and inability to help himself gave him the opportunity to become, the great, to become great in faith, which James tells us in James 2.5, Listen my, beloved, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which, is, which he promised to those who love him? So the poor man's longing is recorded in verse 21 where it says he was longing with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, which probably the dogs were also after. <clears throat> so it sounds like the rich man possibly had a table near his gate where he would eat lavishly while Lazarus was laying on the ground with the dogs. So while Lazarus was longing for the crumbs which were falling off the table, the wealthy man obviously had no concept of stewardship or thought, and thought only about his own comfort, or he would have done something at least to help the suffering of Lazarus. Obviously, he didn't call Recall scriptures such as Proverbs 14.21, which says, He who despises his neighbor's sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy he is. Or Proverbs 19.17, which says, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. The one who enjoyed feasts and parties had no concern for the one who was suffering at his doorstep. Now bear in mind that Jesus is not using this parable to condemn the rich, nor suggesting that the poor will all go to heaven. Jesus doesn't question how the rich man got his money or that he even has it. The rich man isn't even necessarily a bad man, but whatever else he was, in this story he's blind to the person in need who is sitting outside his gate. Now let's look at how they both transition to the next life when they both die. Uh, verse 22 says, So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. So Lazarus, though obviously poor, too poor to afford a funeral, was transported by angels in the presence of Abraham, a place of blessedness. He was given a place of honor and proximity to Abraham's bosom. Abraham's side is really what it translates to. Apparently, for, This apparently refers to a place of paradise for Old Testament believers at the time of death. In spite of his wealth, the rich man also died and was given no doubt a fine burial. We might imagine that he, was, he too was expecting to arrive to be with Abraham and continue to enjoy the good life. And verse 23 contrasts the eternal destiny of the rich man with the eternal destiny of, um, of Lazarus. It says, in being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So at death, the rich man receives no heavenly escort, but finds himself in Hades. Now, Hades is the Greek word translated from the Hebrew sheol, meaning the place of the grave. Here, Hades refers to the destination of the deceased who are unsaved prior to the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. So apparently everyone who died before Jesus went to Sheol, the place of the grave. Jesus' parable appears to divide it into two compartments, separated by a great divide. One side was filled with fire and torment, 
The other side was a place called Abraham's bosom or paradise. Those who were of God would go to the paradise or Abraham's bosom. The reason they couldn't go directly to heaven is because the blood of Christ has not yet been shed. So paradise or Abraham's bosom was simply sort of a waiting room. And Abraham would greet them there. Those who were not of God went to the torment side of Sheol. And according to verse 23, though there was a great gulf between the two, those on both sides seemed to be able to call out to one another, which would have made the flaming side even more hellish. Those in torment could actually see those in paradise. Ephesians 4, 8, and 9 tells us that before Jesus ascended into heaven, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth and led those in Abraham's bosom up to heaven. That is why Abraham's bosom probably does not exist today. However, Hades is not the final destination for the unbeliever, but rather only a temporary holding tank until after the great white throne judgment then he will be cast into what is called Gehenna in Hebrew, outer darkness, or what we would know as hell. Contrary to popular belief, hell is not going to be one big New Year's Eve party. Hell is a place of heat without light, of eternal isolation and unending torment. In Hades, the rich man finally saw, it says he saw afar off, or saw the bigger picture of existence. Uh, that's verse, uh, let's see here, verse 23. He saw, far, saw Abraham afar off. Uh, the word translated into afar off is the Greek word makrothymia, which is a composite word from makran, meaning far away, and thymos, meaning anger, literally far away from anger. So Lazarus was in a place far away from anger. The world says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, because they only see what is in front of them. The unbeliever is of the flesh and can only see with the physical eyes. In death, apparently, they'll see afar off. They'll finally see the big picture of eternity, but it will be too late. And in the context of this chapter, the rich man's sin was not that he hated Lazarus, but simply that he neglected him. The Bible says there are sins of commission, things that we do wrong, and sins of, sins of omission, things we fail to do, which are right. There was, a person, there was a person in need at the rich man's gate, but he didn't offer the help, and that was his sin. Since he cared not about the man in need at his gate, he had not the love of God in his heart. Now, verse 24 <clears throat> This is the rich man says, then he cried out and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Okay, so it's interesting that he, he begins to pray here, okay? To Abraham anyway. The rich man is depicted as being able to, to converse with Abraham, even calling him father. First he prays for himself. First he prays for himself. He begs Abraham to have mercy on him and allow Lazarus to bring him a touch of water. Extreme thirst is probably one of the most terrible pain we can suffer. 
I believe it said that we can live longer without food than we can without water, I believe. <clears throat> okay, another kind of agony or torment is the flame, okay? Despite his circumstances, he still sees Lazarus as someone to be ordered around, someone who should relieve his, relieve his circumstances when he did nothing on earth to relieve the circumstances of Lazarus. If he had only realized his thirst while living, he could have come to Jesus the living water. Jesus said in John 7:37 that if any man, that any man brokenhearted or outcast, atheist or idolater, forsaken or forgotten, poor or rich, may come and drink of this living water. Yet he must, yet he must come to him. It is not enough to wish or resolve or hope. We must act. We must acknowledge our thirst and come to Jesus and partake of the life that only he can give. Now Abraham gives two reasons that comfort could not be brought to the formerly rich man, and this is verses 25 and 26. But Abraham said, uh, oh, sorry, in verse 25, the formerly rich man could not be helped because his character was, was now has now become unalterable. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted here, and you are in agony. And note, note that these words capture the reversal of fortunes for these two men. In the physical world, the man had the bless the rich man had the blessings, he had the good life, and Lazarus the bad life. But after death, the roles are reversed. The rich man is going to have a bad eternity, and Lazarus will have a blessed eternity. Abraham replied that it was not possible that he, that he could help, and that he should remember that during life he had everything he wanted while Lazarus had nothing. Even so, the rich man had never helped Lazarus during the course of his life. The man had lived for the good things of earth, only caring about experiencing an abundance of earthly blessings. It is too late after death to change the way we lived because of who you were on earth. Jesus elevates the man who would be disdained by the Pharisees and humbles the man they would have considered blessed. Remember, we have to remember he's, he's talking to the Pharisees here. He had gotten into a debate with the Pharisees at the beginning of this chapter, and he's, he's directing this parable to them. Although people mistakenly believe that at worst, when they die, they will cease to exist, the fact is that not only will they continue to exist, but they will be able to remember the good things they received on earth, the blessings God poured out upon them, the patience God showed to them, the many opportunities he gave them to turn to him. Therefore, one of the most horrendous aspects of hell is the memory of people that people will have of the times they heard the gospel, but chose to harden their hearts instead. Again, Jesus uses the word agony or torment. He uses it four times in this parable. It indicates a real, definite, and unending pain. Abraham gives another reason in verse 26 that comfort could not be brought to the formerly rich man. And he says, and besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. 
Additionally, a great chasm apparently separates paradise and Hades so that no one could cross from one to the other. Jesus doesn't seem to be describing a literal gulf between paradise and Hades. Rather, he seems to be using the great chasm imagery to describe the permanence of our characters' eternal destinies. Torment is one's eternal recompense, and comfort is Lazarus's eternal blessing. Okay, so let's look at verses 27 through 31 now. Up to this point, all that has been said in warning and in instruction about material things comes vividly to mind. Lazarus enjoys the bliss of Abraham's bosom while the rich man lies in Hades. So in verses 27 to 31, a second vital point is made. The scriptures are sufficient for faith, and when they are rejected, as the rich man has done, not even an event as extraordinary as a resurrection will generate belief. That proved true in the case of Jesus or with the other Lazarus. The rich man next in verse 27 begged that Lazarus be sent to earth to warn his brothers. The rich man said, and he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him, meaning Lazarus, to my father's house. If Lazarus can't come over here, send him back from the dead to tell my family that this place exists. In other words, to explain the terrible reality of hell and the glory of heaven to them. It's interesting that the rich man realized the power of a testimony or witness. He didn't say, send a theologian or a Bible teacher or a preacher. He says, send the one, although he was poor and covered with sores, believed in God and is now in his presence that he may share his testimony. If you have experience sharing your testimony, you probably know that at times Satan may whisper in your ear that you can't witness because you don't know enough about the Bible. You're not that solid in your own walk. Your understanding of theology is too elementary. Well, that's all a lie. <clears throat> the most powerful thing we have is our own personal testimony and what Christ has done for us. <clears throat> Revelation 12, 10 through 11 says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night <clears throat> has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. If you remember back in John 9, after he was, he was cornered by the Pharisees, the once blind man simply said, I can't answer all your questions concerning the nature and person of Jesus, but this I do know. Once I was blind, but now I see. And no one could deny that because that was his personal testimony. So too, the most powerful thing we can tell our unsaved family members or friends is simply what the Lord has done for us. Now, verse 28, the rich man now wants to prevent his family members from having to share his fate. As he said, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them that they will not also come to this place of torment. The formerly rich man now has a concern for his lost brothers. He wants to warn them, but he could do nothing about it. After we die, it's too late to do anything to lead people to eternal salvation in Christ. 
Also notice that the rich man's concern had not changed in spite of his tormented condition. He's still self-centered. He prayed only for his, his comfort and the safety of his family. He's not concerned about the lost, only about his five brothers. How tragic that even the reality and torment of hell does not change condition of the lost heart. Verse 29 calls us to realize that the scripture is all we need to lead people to faith in Jesus. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Abraham points out that they already have the word of God. The word of God is not only sufficient, it is the most powerful means in existence to bring people to faith. If one will not be convinced about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the reality of eternal, of eternal existence in either heaven or hell, nothing else could convince them. That is the supreme power and authority of the word of God. And as it says in Romans 10:7, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. <clears throat> Human beings have an uncanny ability to reject that which they don't want to believe, regardless of the evidence. For example, nurses often report that they sometimes find emphysema patients smoking in bed, alternating between puffs of smoke and whiffs of oxygen. This despite the overwhelming evidence that the practice is killing them. The five brothers of the rich man in Jesus' parable undoubtedly knew the law given through Moses and apparently had refused to obey it. Confronted by prophetic warnings, they turned their backs. Their problem was not hardness of hearing, it was hardness of heart. And the pleas of a resurrected beggar would not change anything. Yet it was the rich man's contention in verse 30 that if one came back from the dead, then his brothers would listen to them listen to him, but he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes, goes to them from the dead, they will repent. <clears throat> the man reasoned, even though they're not listening to the word, if someone comes back from the dead, surely they will listen and repent. In hell, people will finally realize the need to repent, not to believe in any theology, but to repent from sin. Tragically, there will be those who believe in the existence of Jesus. There, there, tragically, there will be those who believe in the existence of Jesus and in the inspiration of Scripture who will be lost eternally because their refusal to repent, to change direction, and follow Christ. Uh, James 2.19 says, The demons and devils also believe. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the, de the demons believe and tremble. But they're not saved because their belief is based on intellectual acknowledgement rather than humble, personal repentance that leads to a changed life. <clears throat> Jesus makes it clear in verse 31 that people have enough light but still miss the obvious truth. But he said to him, <clears throat> this is uh, Abraham speaking to the rich man, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Abraham replied that if they refuse to listen to the scriptures, then they would refuse to listen to one who came back from the dead. And God's prophetic word, if God's prophetic word cannot convince and crack a hard heart, neither will a great miracle. 
Jesus' own resurrection is proof that only a regenerate heart sees the evidence of God's presence and hears his pleading voice. Just a short time later, Jesus would raise a man from the dead, another man named Lazarus. The result of that resurrection was that the religious leaders began to plot more earnestly to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. Their hearts were not changed by a miracle. Okay, let's, let's sum, sum, sum this um, parable up now. After challenging the Pharisees and scribes earlier in the chapter, Jesus tells this parable of the rich man and Lazarus to show that being rich should not be equated with being righteous. The rich man had everything he wanted, but he didn't have what would get him to heaven. This parable further illustrates the point about preparing for the future here and now. No one has a guarantee on tomorrow. This parable, in addition to the parable immediately preceding it, the unjust steward, point to the impossibility of serving two masters. Jesus states the obvious impossibility of serving God and wealth. In verse 13, he says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The Pharisees scoffed at him. So if, if look in your Bible, if you want to look back at verse 14, the same chapter. <clears throat> it says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money, okay, Jesus knew their hearts. Okay? They, thought they, were, they thought they could serve money and God at the same time. They thought they were serving God, but ultimately they were not. And Jesus knew their hearts. If you look at verse 15, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So their so-called piety was actually an abomination because they were not. The Pharisees thought they were entitled. They had the strange idea that their money was deserved. They believed money was a sign that they were blessed by God and poverty was the result of God's curse. As in everything, it is true, wealth is a blessing from God but they believed it was based on their works and who they were, that they, were, they impressed God so much he made them wealthy. They believed it was a reward for their supposed obedience to God. If life was going well and the money was coming in, well, that meant all was well between them and God. However, Jesus repudiates that whole idea. All of us are stewards of what we have, and we are to use it to bless and bring salvation to others the Pharisees, Pharisees used, it, used it for self. Jesus' implication was that the rich man symbolized the Pharisees. They wanted signs so clear that they would compel people to believe. But since they refused to believe the scriptures, they would not believe any sign no matter how great. The reason being faith does not come through signs but only by the word. Their love of money over God and the truly needy was the abomination Jesus was referring to. Their hearts were only concerned with self, all the while claiming to be followers of God's word, which they also used as a weapon to their own ends. Living presumptuously with no compassion for people and especially with no thought of eternity 
caused the rich man to end up in a real place called hell. His heart belonged to the world. The wicked do not just cease to exist, but go to a place of torment. Jesus said hell is real indeed. God takes no pleasure in the unsaved. We should not mistake the message of this parable to mean our good works get us to heaven. The mere action of helping a needy person will not earn forgiveness of sin. It's the condition of the heart when changed through the Holy Spirit that leads us to real good works. Jesus tells this parable of the rich man and Lazarus to show that being rich in this world should not be equated with being righteous. It also should, it also should not be our goal. Should we forsake the eternal for the temporary? This parable also shows the contrast between the world and God. In the world, the rich man was in the position of honor. The world loves wealth, nice clothes, prestige. The beggar was in a position of derision. He was ignored, stepped over, despised. But in the next life, the roles will be reversed. Those who honor God will possess the positions of honor, while those who did not but pursued other gods will be the despised. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God will provide, not necessarily everything we want, but what we need. It is clear from Jesus' story that there is no more certain road to hell than living a selfish, godless life. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Living in Christ means living a life of selfless, selfless service to others. The rich man had everything he wanted except one thing. He didn't have what would lead him to heaven. So let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, as this parable shows us, Lord, that as much as this world and our, our flesh often treasures the things of the world, Lord. They are only temporary. They will be burned up with everything in the end. <clears throat> and it is only what is, done, what is done for eternity that will last. And it is only what we have through the, uh, the sacrifice of your son, not through any good works that we do, that we, we have a claim to it. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen.